0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello, everybody. Today's episode
1: is brought to you by Poster Text. Poster Text designs posters for book lovers. They're posters made of text. Right now, over at postertext.com, you can get a 20% discount when you use the offer code OTHERPEOPLE14, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. One four twenty percent discount. Postertext.com. Use that offer code, OtherPeople14. These are posters made of text. They're great conversation starters. You stand up close to the poster, and it's text. You move slowly away. The text coalesces into a striking visual image. Do you understand how this works? It's magical. Postertext.com. These are posters made of text. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone you have found other people
2: you and i have a friend in common
1: every stupid thing that a writer could do i've done
2: i think it's really beautiful (laughs) jake stated what a struggle you know it was incredible you know it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there
0: and now here's your host brad listy
2: just one person at just one time. Right. All uh, right, <laughs>
1: everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something I made. This is something for you to consume with your head. Hello. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I have a great show for you today. My guest is Cameron Pierce, and he is an author of several books. He's also the editor of Lazy Fascist Press. Very excited to have him here. We had a good talk, and uh, you'll hear it in uh, mere moments. I do want to say a couple of things, or uh, like one main thing that's been bothering me this past week. Uh, As most of you know, as pretty much everybody knows, uh, the dominant news story over the past week has been this uh, awful shooting in France. All of these cartoonists at the uh, satirical magazine Charlie Hebdo gunned down by crazy people uh, in their place of work. A massive march in Paris the other day, million you know over a million people in the streets. It's been uh, dominating the news. So uh, I don't want to go over it again because I'm sure all of you have probably been uh, saturated. But I do want to say that it watching and reading about this, you know, watching it on the news and then reading about it in the news, the aftermath. One thing that stands out to me is the phrase "war on terror," "war on terrorism." I can't believe that this gets actual airplay. I can't believe that CNN, uh, you know, uses this, uh, phrase or any major news outlet, uh, you know, outside of the context of quoting a political actor, because we all know politicians love to use the phrase war on terrorism. Journalists, writers have a responsibility to, uh, call them out on this and nobody really does. And it drives me up the fucking wall. So I don't usually go off on rants, uh, related to, uh, politics and I'm trying to, uh, you know, walk a fine line here by doing that, but trying to, you know, I'm tying it into word choice in an effort to keep this germane to, uh, the literary interests of this show. But do you know what I'm saying? War on terrorism. We all know that's bullshit. We all know that terrorism is a tactic. Can't defeat it. There's no evidence procedure for victory. Have I said this before? My God it drives me crazy drives me crazy on the one hand because it's a stupid use of language on the other hand it drives me crazy because uh it, it could be insidious there are people who use this politicians and uh you know other sorts of uh, operatives who use this phrase knowing full well what they're doing you can't how are you supposed to know when you've won terrorism is a tactic you can't really defeat it are we ever going to rid the world of terror no of course not anybody with half a brain understands that Words matter It's one of the things that uh, all of us who are into books and writing can agree on I would, you know, I would imagine So words matter, word choice matters Especially when uh, you're a leader You're in a position of leadership And uh, the entire population of your country is in a state of fear And the, collect- you know, the collective consciousness is uh, filled with fear and paranoia Word choice really matters then So if you're going to start tossing the word war around, then, uh, you know, you better be clear. And might I suggest a rule for war? There should be an evidence procedure for victory. We should know what victory looks like. How do we know when we've won? When can we throw the ticker tape? Do you know what I'm saying? So that's all I want to say. That phrase is horseshit. People who use it are either lazy and stupid or evil and bad.
0: Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond,
1: I uh, had a great time talking with him. I think many of you out there in the Indie, in the, uh, indie Lit community are aware of him. He uh, has written many books. He is the editor of Lazy Fascist Press. Here he is, folks. Let's do the show. Cameron Pierce.
2: Yeah, we're going to spend you know, a couple of weeks. We leave for South Africa, and we're going to be there for five weeks. So the baby's due shortly after we get back. So we, we didn't really have a choice but to, to get everything finalized before, before we leave.
1: Wow. So, why are you going to South Africa?
2: Uh, I was invited to be the Mellon Writer in Residence at Rhodes University. So, I'll be going there, uh, doing some lectures, working with the graduate program, doing some readings. So, I'm really excited about that.
1: Wow! What if your what, what if your wife uh, gives birth early in South Africa? Then your child will be South African, right?
2: That will be a really interesting experience but uh the good news is the university there has a wonderful hospital uh we will have a couple prenatal appointments over there and uh if, if that happens which we hope it doesn't uh, at, at least we're in good hands
1: it's like very brangelina like that would be very you know just like have your child in africa <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah
1: okay so and you you said you moved from portland to astoria yeah okay so that's like the goonies right? that's the that's the town of the goonies it
2: is yeah, yeah, you know, the Goonies house is, is about a mile from us.
1: Okay, beautiful place.
2: Yeah, yeah, we really
1: love it. Why'd you move there?
2: For one, Portland was getting a lot more expensive and feeling a lot more crowded. Uh, also, uh, we were looking to buy a house, but Portland's housing market is is just out of our range. Uh, Astoria is still extremely cheap we fell in love with the town and and started spending as much time here as we could and and decided to move here a couple of years before we uh, originally anticipated
1: Oh, well, okay so and then what do you do like what do you do in Astoria aside from uh, write and run lazy fascist
2: I actually make a full-time living writing and editing so that's what I do here as well no shit yeah.
1: So, okay, so let's get into this. So you you are the editor and founder of Lazy Fascist Press, which I, I love the name of, you know, as far as uh, naming presses goes. Like, Lazy Fascist is up at the top for me. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So when did that begin? How did you get into it? Uh, you know, give us a little bit of backstory from, from the publishing side.
2: Lazy Fascist began in, I believe, 2010. And uh, in 2008, I had signed a five book contract with Eraserhead Press. And they put out my first book uh, in the fall of that year. And I was uh, still going to college in Washington at the time at Evergreen. And in the spring, I came down to Portland from Olympia on an internship to work in the Eraserhead offices. Uh, get a sense of what publishers and editors do on a day-to-day business and immerse myself in the business side of writing because after my first book came out, I realized I had no real fucking clue what to do to promote it or essentially anything, you know, and I had no real idea what, what a publisher uh, did. And uh, so I came down to Portland, uh, got involved and uh, never left and then ended up taking on a position with Eraserhead, and eventually, uh, after a while, I was uh, helping out more with books, and at at a certain point, they wanted to launch a new imprint when one of their sister presses uh, decided to close, and they offered me the opportunity to run it, which is how Lazy Passions came about, and uh, one of the first books that I, I signed on was Person by Sam Pink, which has Remained one of our best sellers.
0: Yeah,
1: that one. That's like for you know, as far as indie press books go, that's a big one.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was uh, following Sam's work and reading everything I could get by him, and it was really hard to find his books. And and so it's been really great to work with him and, and get his stuff out there more widely.
1: So how many copies has he sold? I mean, can you give me ballpark? And I, you know, because I feel like there's a lot of mystery around this. People wonder. Uh, or people, I think, can sometimes come up with ideas in their head about what it looks like and um, it's useful to actually know what the reality is. Like, you know, for an indie press book, for people listening who might be out there considering going that route, uh, you know, earlier in their careers, you know, what's a reasonable expectation or what's like a, a high, high-end high expectation for success? You
2: know, re- realistically, I don't have uh, direct access to all of our sales records. Um, but in terms of what, you know, what to expect from an indie book, uh, you might be talking from – it could be anywhere from low – I'd say low triple digits to 10000 or so. And so it's, a, it's an extremely wide range, and it, it, it's interesting to see what catches on and what doesn't because it has nothing to do with the money invested – or the time invested. Sometimes, not even the author's name. Uh, certain things catch on, and, and certain things don't.
1: There, yeah, there's like I mean, I'm, I've come to the I've come to the conclusion, I think that it's really just all about word of mouth, and that it's mysterious, and that nobody knows how to game it.
2: It is, and and uh, you know, I mean, I was talking with uh, a friend who works in a bookstore in California a couple months ago, and he said that. Uh, an employee at the same bookstore had hand sold, I think, seven hundred fifty copies of one book. So that he loved the book so much that he put it into everyone's hands. And and well, I think what that you know, what was the book? I honestly don't remember. It was a it was a major press title, um, but I I can't recall what it was. I don't even I don't think it was something I had been aware of before. Okay. But and and you know Amazon's algorithms are entirely mysterious. I think even to Amazon. So <laughs> I've I've watched books uh, through that just completely explode overnight and sell insanely well for years with no major reviews, uh, no, no anything other than suddenly readers everywhere are buying the book.
1: Yeah. That's why. Yeah. So it's, so it's a totally mysterious process. Like it, it's all, It seems kind of magical to me. Like if somebody it is. writes a book and it goes out and like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are reading it and passing it around, like that to me is magic. And I should say in much the same way that like the the making of a good film seems like magic to me just because – but yet for different reasons. It's because there's so many cooks in the kitchen. You have all these people – with their hands on it, you know, from uh, producers to the director to the cinematographer. It's just this giant, messy collaboration. Like, there, there should almost never be a good movie made considering that, so that when it happens, it seems like there's got to be some sort of, like, fairy dust on it somehow.
2: Yeah, and and with books, it's, it's kind of the same way. And, and knowing that each decision you make in terms, you know, the editorial process, the design process, could entirely transform how a book is perceived, even titles. Yeah. Uh, one book that we're putting out in the next couple of months is a, a debut novel by a Portland writer, uh, Kevin Maloney. And the book is called Cult of Loretta. And I think we've got a half a dozen covers designed for it. And we've decided on the one that we're going to run for the ARC. But in terms of the final book, it's, it's almost like we want to put it up to a vote for readers just because uh, which cover we go, you know, we'll entirely alter how people perceive it
1: well it's market research why not right use social media yeah. put it up see which one gets the most likes yeah I mean is that what you're gonna do
2: maybe we do that uh, sometimes we also occasionally will announce a book that's not a real book and put up a cover just to see how people respond to something that we would wouldn't publish uh, so and that's uh, my designer uh, Matthew Rivera he's in Australia and and we have a lot of fun just uh, going back and forth and, and kind of getting crazy with ideas and creating fake things and, and alternative versions of books. So and, and he's kind of up to design whatever at any point. So yeah.
1: Okay. So and and you said you were at uh, college in Olympia. Yeah. And you got a five book deal with Eraserhead. Yeah. So you have like you were what nineteen years old, twenty years old.
2: Yeah, I think I was 19 when I signed the contract, and then and then 20 when my first book came out.
1: Okay, so that's very young. And then you moved down there to do this internship. You say you never left Portland, so did you drop out of college? I did, yeah. You did, and so you've just been in it ever since. Like, you decided this was the road you were going to go. and,
2: and it's, yeah. it's what I had always wanted in, in high school. My only real-life goal was to get a book published by Racerhead by the time I was 30. So when I went down there on the internship uh, at that point, you know, I, I was toward the end of it, sitting at a brewery with uh, Carlson, like the third III uh, one day. And he's been my mentor for years and, and worked closely with me on both the writing process and, and just career development. But basically, you know, he said that if I go back I'm, you know, when I do come back, I'm, I'm going to be months behind or a full year behind uh where i would be if i stayed and and i kind of agreed with him so i just i just stayed on
1: yeah well i mean if you know what you want to do and you're clear about it and you have an opportunity like that uh you know it's better than school i mean it's you're getting an education yeah i mean it's it's like you're not getting an education you're just getting it directly and you're on your you're on your track
2: yeah i mean it's it's what i had hoped for so luckily it worked out
1: okay and so you had a life goal like why did you have this life goal to get uh, published by eraserhead
2: because I I wasn't interested in doing anything else, and uh, Eraserhead felt like home for my work. That I started submitting uh, fiction and poetry when I think I was fifteen or sixteen, and and I was submitting to places like Weird Tales, uh, and and what I was writing clearly didn't fit there. I was on one hand influenced by by Lovecraft and other Weird Tales authors, but more drawn towards uh William Burroughs, Franz Kafka, uh Rambo, some of the early surrealists and and basically utilizing whatever techniques I could find, you know, cut up methods and everything else and and those the the merger of those two, you know, well actually that's more than two different things uh didn't really work for most publications until I found uh, the Dream People, which was a web journal uh, originally founded by Eraserhead that then moved on to Duck Screen Press's hand, and it was a Bizarro Fiction journal. And as soon as I started reading the fiction there, it felt like home, and the first story I submitted was accepted, and at that point, I, I fell into Bizarro Fiction and reading everything in the Eraserhead catalog.
1: Okay, and so what kind of kid were you in high school? Were you like a, a big book nerd? I mean, it's a, it's unusual to have that level of focus, I think, uh, on uh, at that at that age.
2: I was I was kind of all over the place in high school. I, I started off playing in a lot of punk bands. Um and you know, playing shows in, in basements or I, I think at best we played uh at the, on the smaller stage at the knitting factory in Hollywood, but what, no wait, one showed up. Where are you from? Uh Bakersfield.
1: Okay. That's like uh, cowboy country kinda in, uh
2: Yeah, it is. Buck Owens and Farms. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, okay, like, happy childhood. Do you like it there, or did you want to get the hell out?
2: Uh, You know, yeah, I had a happy childhood, and I wanted to get the hell out of Bakersfield as soon as I could.
1: <laughs> right. They're not mutually exclusive. Like, you can have a happy childhood and want to get the hell out of wherever you were happy.
2: Yeah, and and, you know, it's—Bakersfield's a weird place, you know. It's a place where it seems like, you know— statistically i think more people there probably don't believe that we landed on the moon for example and and they're just i don't know i think it's the i think it's the pollution or something but it's a strange flat place that just harbors aggression and and odd beliefs yeah so,
1: so you know, like that probably feeds into your sensibility uh, artistically with the bizarro stuff
2: yeah you know it could for sure i'm i'm especially in in some recent work i've been writing a lot about experiences in Bakersfield and, and depicting the town more uh, in fiction.
1: And what's the relationship with Bakersfield to Los Angeles? Did Los Angeles occupy like uh, some more like, you know, heightened place in your imagination because of proximity or no, did you feel that you were, you know, just far removed from it and it was as different as any other different place?
2: You know, it was in high school. It was the place where the better shows happened that we'd have great basement shows but, you know, a lot of bands are going to pass over a town like Bakersfield. So it was it was where you went for a lot of, of music. And, uh, you know, beyond that, I, you know, I love Los Angeles now. And and it's one of my favorite cities. But growing up, I, I didn't care for it too much. And it's only in recent years that I, I've really started uh, liking it and, and appreciating all the time I spend there.
1: Yeah. What's that? What's changed for you?
2: You know, I'm really not sure. Um, I I can't tell you what's changed uh, about it other than uh, everyone I know in Los Angeles is, you know, I think it's a city full of some of the most creative-driven people. And and the people there who who create uh, really want to get shit done and and make things happen and do get it done. And and that's something I really admire.
1: Okay. And so what did your folks do out in Bakersfield? Like, you say it was cowboy country. Like, did your... Was your father a cowboy?
2: <laughs> no, he uh, he distributes beer for a living, and my mom is or was an elementary school teacher. She's not teaching anymore.
1: Wait, so you said your dad distributes beer? Yeah. Okay, what does that
2: mean? He, uh, he works for a company that distributes everything from uh, Miller to Microbrews. And so uh, we actually mail a lot of beer back and forth because he can get certain things down there that I can't get here, and I can get a lot of stuff that he can't get.
1: Okay, so did you grow up drinking a lot of beer?
2: Uh, no, not necessarily.
1: Huh. Okay, is your dad a big drinker?
2: <laughs> mm, not necessarily. He, uh, you know, he'll he likes craft brews a good bit, but no, I wouldn't say he's a big drinker.
1: Yeah, no, it's like sort of like when I cook a meal in the kitchen, I don't eat it. You know, it's like when you do you know what I'm saying? Do you understand? Maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not. Mm-hmm. Making, yeah, something like that. But um, yeah. okay, okay, so you grew up? Any siblings?
2: I've got a I've got a half well, a stepbrother, stepsister and half sister.
1: Okay. So what does that mean? Stepbrother, stepsister, and half sister. What's aren't they or no, stepbrother and stepsister are from a different marriage and then half sisters
2: Yeah. Okay. It's my uh yeah, my stepmom, her kids, but they're I guess technically half half siblings now. And then and then my dad and stepmom had a kid uh I think like ten years ago. So, so yeah, I've got a couple, a couple siblings.
1: And when did you, your parents divorce, how old were you?
2: Uh, I think I was around two. Oh,
1: okay. So it was early. Yeah. Is that better? I guess that, I mean, I hear people say like, oh, you know, my parents divorced at two. I didn't, I never knew anything different. And then people whose parents divorce when they're like in junior high can like fuck them up more or something.
2: Yeah. It's, you know, I, to me, it's, it wasn't and isn't a traumatic thing. Uh, or even a, a jarring thing, but I've I've known a lot of people whose parents divorce, you know, junior high, high school, uh, or later, and and it's much more traumatic. So
1: and so okay, so you get through high school, you're playing, uh, you know, in punk bands. You're an artistic kid, um, but like no real. I mean, was the punk thing uh, like something that your parents were cool with, or was it something they sort of uh, recoiled from? I mean, you know, it can be. They that-
2: recoiled from it a, a good bit. Uh, because that was right around the time that I decided to stop playing football, uh, uh, which is something I love, but I didn't love the people who I was playing with. And it wasn't worth doing it if I had to be around them.
1: Why? What was the deal? So, what, what position did you play?
2: Uh, I played quarterback. Okay. Quarterback my last year, wide receiver before that. But, uh, you know, it's just typical jock shit. And uh, I'd, I'd been around it enough and was done with it.
1: Wait, were people, were these guys picking on you or what was the deal?
2: Oh, not at all. Just like, but other people, you know, and if, if you sit around and, and watch other people get picked on or, or any of the other types of behavior that you see, you know, in a locker room, uh, it's, it's not right. A lot of it. And, and I don't want to be around it.
1: Okay. So you did this, you make this break and you start to go into, uh, music and, uh, drugs, any of that stuff in high school?
2: Uh, no, no, not really. Uh, not until, you know, I was 17 and read, uh, Hunting the Doors of Perception by Houston Smith, which was a response to Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. And at that point, I decided mushrooms would be a really great idea. <laughs> uh, never smoked pot or anything like that, but, uh, but yeah, started getting into, uh, mushrooms and, and then later, you know, ayahuasca and, uh, yopo and basically male order psychedelics.
1: Okay, so let's talk about this, because this is an area of fascination for me. Um, like, How big were the experiences? Any, like, I mean, g- good, bad, ugly, all of the above?
2: I'd say all of the above. Uh, LSD has never, ever been good for me. Uh, so that was something I, I learned, you know, probably pretty quickly. Uh, and Ayahuasca was far more interesting.
1: How so? Uh, how so?
2: Just in terms of the entire process, you know, for one, to acquire the the fresh materials, I had to order, I spent years reading books on it, researching it, and then finally to acquire the, the real materials, I had to order the actual bark from from one mail-order website, the fresh leaves from another. They both arrive, of course, from the same PO box, though, on the same day. Uh, and then, you know, basically whittling down the, the bark into, you know, with a screwdriver and boiling this down into a, a horrible dirt tasting concoction uh and and the experience itself though was uh was very warm and 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 i and i'd say one of the most uh so what would you say you know and, and just basically not a total removal from from you know the exterior world but but a pretty significant transformation of the world so um,
1: like, did you uh did you purge like you like puking everywhere before yes the... okay yeah, that's got to see. That always strikes me as like that could set me off on a bad experience if like the first thing I do.
2: It, it doesn't. That's that's what's amazing about it is that you really do feel this this like maternal force that is is sort of there and present and and watching over you. Okay, and guys, I gotta and, I gotta so, I, I
1: want to stop you because this is another thing that I constantly hear with ayahuasca, which is interesting, is that it's decidedly female. Yeah it's a female thing. Like everyone says this, there's like a, a female spirit guide or something involved in the experience. Yeah. That's not bullshit.
2: That's not bullshit. Uh, and, and that's, you know, one thing that I really liked about not just that experience, but, uh, Salvia was something that I, I spent a lot of time with, uh, which was, I think you could still buy that in, in any head shop, but, uh, you know that's basically this this extract from uh, Salvia divinorum, and they say that the active, uh, you know, the active component in there is uh, salvinorin A, if I recall, and uh, it's a very short, intense experience that, in a lot of ways, resembles reports of GMT experiences. Uh, you know, it lasts anywhere from a couple seconds to a couple minutes. Entire, you know, just total removal from from the world, and. I uh, I'd often read these reports of what people experienced with salvia and it sounded like total bullshit like merging into furniture for example you know like if you're <laughs> you might become a carpet or you might become a bed or, or something and and whatever else anyone said about it uh, because the first first couple times I used it uh, I, it didn't work for me and then once at a, at a party you know it never worked before like nothing happened and then once at a party you know some you know some people were smoking in the backyard so so I went ahead and, and Took a couple hits, and the next thing I know, I'm coming to, and I'm on the ground, and I've been rolling around, and basically was just utterly gone. And uh, and so I spent a lot of time with that. And you know, uh, have you read any Terence McKenna?
1: Oh yeah, tons. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you know the self-transforming machine nails that he talks about.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is another this is another thing because I'm thing is I've read a lot of Terence McKenna, but I'm too I'm too much of a chicken. And maybe too old to get into, you know, tracking down ayahuasca and going to Peru and the jungle and all that. Like, it may, you know, if it crossed my path, I'd probably give it a shot. If like, you know, my kid wasn't around.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I'm I'm so far done with all all this. Right, and, right. It's and like have it's, no it's... interest in it anymore. But the the experiences though themselves were still pathetic and still give me something to chew on. Just because uh they. Seem like bullshit, and and when other people describe their experiences, it sounds like bullshit, but it's real, and it can have a transform you know transformative impact.
0: No,
1: no, I, th- I believe there's medicinal qualities to this stuff. I mean, it's like it's I, I yeah I, I, I get really pissed off at the notion that these are just like criminal substances. I mean, it's a, well, it's
2: that's re- the the best of those is is yopo, which uh, I can't recall where that derived from, but a friend of mine got these seeds and he prepared it and just mailed it to me, uh, and and you uh, rail it. So you, I think, you know, just like one big line or a couple lines. And it's a short-acting, basically cleansing agent that's with mild psychoactive properties. Uh, but of all, all you know, psychedelics, I would say that's in a lot of ways the most interesting because if the purpose is, you know, medicinal and, and for cleansing purposes, uh, Yoko is by far the most effective.
1: What is it called, Yoko?
2: Yopo, Y O P O. Oh,
1: okay. And
2: Yopo. basically, you spend a half hour in hell. Uh, you're in agony and and feel sicker than shit, uh, and, and you vomit, and uh, and that's pretty much the entire experience. But you come out of it feeling amazing.
1: What is it like? Are you are you in like? I mean, I know you're in physical hell and you're purging and you're puking everywhere and whatever. But then, like, are you also in psychological hell? Is it like that?
2: No, oh no, not at all there you're you are totally fine, except you're focused so much on your physical pain that that there's not really anything else, and then you come out of this and the and and the nausea and everything leaves and and you feel good
1: weird is it just like yeah, a, it, is it a contrast i mean it's, it's, maybe it's just like, oh my God, I felt like such shit, I'm so relieved to not feel like shit it that- could be
2: it could be uh, the, you know I, I just find it intriguing because. Most things can be abused recreationally. Most people aren't going to abuse ayahuasca because, for one, it's it's difficult to acquire or or make. Uh, but it's it, it's possible. It's not you know outside the realm of possibility. But with Yopo, there's no chance anyone's doing that for fun.
1: Right. <laughs> oh my God. So what about these machine elves? You know, because like McKenna talks about DMT, and DMT, the DMT experience is like what, like fifteen minutes. It's a very short, yeah, I, think, I mean, yeah, as, as far yeah, as, very short. as far as psychedelic experiences go, it's very short, um, yeah. because ayahuasca is like a 10 hour journey or whatever. And LSD can be even longer and mushrooms are like four or five hours. And, um, but DMT, you, you, you smoke this stuff, right. And then you're gone for like 15 minutes. And he says, you go into like what the dome <laughs> and then you see the machine elves and they're like little self dribbling basketballs that bounce around and, like, talk to you? I mean, am I... Yeah,
2: something like that.
1: Okay, so this happened to you. You did this and and you saw these things?
2: I wouldn't say that, but, yeah, something like that. That was interesting one. Uh, I think it was over the course of three or four uh, times using salvia. Each time I returned to the same place, which was this sub-level world that kind of intersected with ours, uh, with these short glowing elf-like creatures there. And I just returned to the same place every time. And I'd be a little bit under. And uh, and it, it only happened a couple of times and it seemed like bullshit even at the time except that it was happening and I was there and, uh, and then it never happened again except for these couple times, which like, consistently, you know, I think, yeah, I think about three times it happened okay, so, in a row.
1: Okay. So what's the takeaway? Like what, can you conclude anything from this? Like, or what do you suspect this means? I,
2: just, <laughs> I have no conclusions or, and I, I have no real thoughts on it, uh, other than, really don't know what to think about that
1: <laughs> yeah well no but like what it makes me think you know i've never gone through that but it make what it makes me think is that like the world is a lot weirder than meets the eye you know like whatever whatever your reality is or whatever you think it is looking out of your head uh it's a lot stranger there's a lot more than meets the eye and like we we have barely even scratched the surface of understanding what's going on here
2: i think so too
1: yeah but i mean and like there's also this possibility that sort of haunts me that these like little machine elves are like running the show and that they're like fucking with us and like this is all a joke, <laughs> you know? Like, who knows? Who knows what's going on? It could be some sort of alien, pre- yeah. some sort of alien presence. Like, uh, speaking of Bakersfield, you know? Uh, but I mean, I don't. I, you know, maybe there's uh, something extraterrestrial happening. Who knows? Who knows? Or or uh, or it's like you know some sort of uh, you know extremely next level computer simulation thing or I don't know I don't mean to sound crazy I'm just uh, you know it, it it forces one to sort of entertain possibilities if you reckon with this stuff uh, at all you know or if you give it any credence and like uh, you know I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature but you hear enough people do this stuff and come back reporting the same thing and it gives you pause you know yeah so, it does. okay so you go through this phase you go through like a punk rock psychedelic phase which I think is an interesting combination Um, but there's not like heavy drinking. There's not like those, those are your drugs. Like you're doing it. It seems like it's kind of like an intellectual pursuit and the spiritual pursuit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know what it was, uh, but you know, yeah. And then I moved to the coast of California for a while and, and it's more of a party scene there. So I fell into that for a bit, but where on on the the coast, where on the coast, uh, San Luis Obispo.
1: Okay. Yeah. 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 Beautiful.
2: And what, yeah and then what was it eventually school?
1: was it school or you just uh
2: yeah yeah i both getting out uh getting out of bakersfield and and uh attending a community college there okay for a while
1: and then from there you go up to washington yep all right what's the university in olympia evergreen okay so yeah you go to evergreen which is pretty hippied out like or not even what mm-hmm. is that is that right hippied or what is it
2: yeah, it's very, very hippie now.
1: Okay, so then there and then Portland and you're and you off and running in your profession. Yeah. Any, like, incredible, uh, I mean, lows or periods of confusion or have you always had it pretty much together?
2: Uh, oh, yeah, probably uh, plenty of lows, plenty of periods of confusion, but uh, always knowing what the end goal was and, and doing whatever possible to get there as quickly as possible, which I think sometimes created... Some of the lows and confusion
1: so like you like in the end goal is what just make a living as a writer and get published by a Eraserhead
2: yeah and now just to be a good husband and, and you know soon a good dad uh, but yeah that's that's pretty much it
1: yeah well I mean that's that's it's not nothing <laughs> you know those are uh, yeah there's a lot on you know anybody who takes that on it's a lot and it's a um, what's the word It's a noble, it's a noble aspiration. Um, so, okay. So you get to, uh, Portland and you get into this editorial stuff. Um, like, is there any concern when you're working editorially that it's going to take away from your ability to write? You know, I think a lot of us wrestle with that where we're trying to divide up our time. And, you know, I think some writers can be very, uh, very kind of, uh, tunnel visioned when it comes to their work. They don't want to do anything else. They don't want to do this editorial stuff because you know they want to focus on the the main task like how do you balance it
2: I mean yeah editing does impact my ability to write at times you know sometimes after spending hours you know talking to authors planning you know everything from promotional campaigns or or whatever else needs to be done uh to then you know spending hours editing one book or another book or reading submission uh sometimes i don't want to write but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. On one hand, all the authors that I've I've worked with have uh, been some of my biggest influences uh, over the past couple of years, and and getting the opportunity to work closely with them and and see them go through multiple drafts has has been uh, an immense help to me as a writer.
1: Like, who who are some of these writers who have influenced you, that you've worked with? uh,
2: Scott McClanahan, uh, Blake Butler, uh, Sam, of course, uh, Brian Allen Carr uh, Stephen Graham Jones. Oh, geez. I don't want to forget anyone now, but you know, the list goes on and on.
1: Right, right, right. Okay. So, um, you do this stuff like lazy Fascist still under the eraser head umbrella? Yeah, it is. Okay. And then like, how do you guys work? You guys pay advances?
2: Uh, no, we offer 50% royalties paid monthly.
1: Okay. And you pay monthly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then do you have, do you have bookstore distri- uh, distribution or do you sell only online and?
2: Uh, we we do direct sales. We sell online, and then we also get into uh, bookstores throughout the world. Uh, that's something that I should probably uh, focus on more. But I'll probably bring on a bookstore rep to help with that, just to keep stores uh, stocked. Just because I sometimes lose track of which stores have ordered what and, and you know what stock they have on you know on hand at the time. So
1: so yeah, and like can, can you talk a little bit about how that works? Because I think that's a part of it that some people uh, miss or don't quite understand, like you're an indie press and you want to try to get your titles into a bookstore. You need to have a distribution deal with one of these book distributors, right?
2: Yeah. So we're print on demand. Uh, we print our books through lightning stores and they're uh, listed in the Ingram catalog. And a lot of bookstores will go ahead and just store our books through there. So here are the books from, you know, from whatever, you know, word of mouth or, or somewhere else. And order the books, stock the books. Uh, others, though, uh, will come to us to order directly, and, and we're always happy to fulfill orders that way, too. Or sometimes there's a store that we really like, and we'll reach out to them because, uh, you know, we want our books carried there. So yeah. there are a number of ways that books can end up in stores.
1: Yeah, and like I, like I use Lightning Source for uh, the Nervous Breakdown book imprint, and it's great because you don't have to like warehouse books or have like boxes of books in your garage or in your house or whatever, and you're not ship you know running to the post office every five minutes. But the problem is that margins are really narrow, right? I mean, you, if you're not doing a print run and you're printing on demand, and you're doing a paperback book that's like 200 pages, like you wind up walking with like you know a buck a book if you're lucky.
2: Actually, with Lightning Source, uh, our margins are higher. It allows us to to make. Uh Good profit on uh, books priced at 7.95. Uh, we do a lot of novellas because, I mean, for one, uh, that's kind of my favorite form, both to write and to read. Uh, but also, a lot of publishers, especially big publishers, aren't taking on novellas. So that's one niche that we can kind of carve out for ourselves. Um, and the, few, and, and what, what, know, the
1: few, fewer pages keeps print costs down, so when you you make a you make a bigger margin.
2: Yeah, about uh yeah, books around 100 to 120 pages uh can be priced at 7.95 and make a profit.
1: Okay. So there you go. See, that's the problem is that you get up into like the 300 page range and the cost, you know, becomes kind of prohibitive when it comes to I you mean know, or you know, not prohibitive, but it just makes profits modest, I should say.
2: Yeah, it depends on you know, it's the longer books that are that are really tough when you get up to like 500 pages and everything and uh, th- this year, in the fall, we're putting out Animal Money by Michael Cisco, which I think the uh, arc is 750 pages long. So that's going to be that'll be our longest title by far, and uh, and yeah, it'll be you know our goal though will be to keep the cost down so that you know it's not prohibitive to to readers.
1: And then, okay, yeah, and, like, what about, uh, like, submissions and stuff like that? Like, are you are people submitting to you directly, or do you getting it from agents, all of the
0: above?
2: All of the above. Uh, sometimes I, I solicit work. Uh, we had an open submission period last year, and I'm still going through submissions from that. And a, a number of people also submit uh, or query even when we're closed. And, and, you know, I'll take a look at that stuff, too, uh, because you never know what's going to come in. And it's so it's, uh, so, when you're, us,
1: wait, so when you're evaluating a manuscript, okay, somebody sends something over the transom to you directly, or an agent sends you an, uh, you know a manuscript. Uh, how much do you read? Like do you have a system or do you give it like if the first page is shit, do you just throw it away? What do you do?
2: I mean, in general, I'm, I'm looking at the title, I'm looking at the synopsis, and uh, you know, I'll start reading the first page and and if that doesn't grab me, I'll skim through some of the uh, you know the rest of the manuscript. And, you know, sometimes if the first page doesn't grab you, maybe the book really starts with page 30, and you've got a great book if you cut the rest, you know, cut right. the beginning off. Right. Uh, so, so you can't just read the first page, but at the same time, if, you know, if the first page doesn't grab you and you move ahead, you know, quarter, quarter of the way through the book or halfway through the book and, and nothing's happening and you look at the synopsis again and nothing's really grabbing you there, or you can't envision, like, what I want is to receive. Uh, a pitch and in my mind i instantly see how that book is going to be packaged i have i have the cover in mind i know what it's going to look like on shelves and i can imagine the type of people who want to read it and even if it's just one reader or a dozen readers or if it's 500 readers who that book will be perfect for i'm happy if i if i can imagine exactly who it's for
1: yeah well no that's, i mean that makes some sense i mean it, it, like you don't want to sound reductive because, like, I mean, it makes me think of elevator pitches and the movie business, which you know is probably because I live in LA. But um, you know that can get frustrating for creative people to think like that because you're you're you know you're neck deep in a book and it's this complex organism or whatever, and then someone's like, "What's it about?" And you're supposed to somehow be able to turn around and encapsulate it in a line or two. But the the truth is that, uh, you know, if a if a book or a, uh, any kind of you know narrative art form if it's if it's rendered well it does often elicit that kind of response where you can see the see the cover or see the poster or see you know imagine who it's for you know instantly do you know what i'm saying like it's it's not yeah. it's not necessarily a bad exercise to uh, take your book through that kind of uh, interrogation like to see if it's done or if it's you know rendered well
2: yeah. And even, uh, you know, elevator pitches are great. And, you know, like Nick and Tosca pitched the obese to me as, uh, the birds with obese people. And <laughs> I was, I was instantly hooked. I had to read that and the book. It's just a phenomenal story. Uh, but also, you know, I, I've also accepted manuscripts where the pitch comes in and synopsis doesn't do anything for me. Uh, and I'm like, okay, that, that doesn't, I, I don't really know what this is and I'll start reading it and I, and I'm, I'm, you know, fall in love with it. So, uh, you know, I'll always give a book a chance because ultimately, as I see it, uh, first and foremost, that, you know, figuring out how to sell something is my job and not the writer's. So if they can't figure out how to talk about their book, that's perfectly okay because if it's something I'm going to take on, then we'll go through that together and figure out, you know, how they can do that. It's it's my job to equip them with the tools to go out and, and sell the book.
1: And do you tell your authors, like, I think you should have a platform and you should do Twitter and all this, or are you just like, you know what, we're going to put this... No,
2: I... I don't think it's worth doing, like participating on social media, unless you enjoy it. You can be, you know, huge for for your writing career, but if you don't enjoy it, you're probably not going to do so great with it. That's why. So, I, that's why
1: I should I, quit. I should quit. I don't enjoy it. It stresses
2: me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I, I I like Twitter, like following other people, but I can't quite, you know, I don't do it for myself so much. But yeah, uh, and, and yeah, I, I mean. I've got writers who go on book tours and purchase, you know, do everything they possibly can. And then I've got others who, who do nothing at all. And uh, the funny thing is, uh, in general, I mean, the more you do, the more chances your book has at succeeding. But I've also got authors who do nothing and their books just, like, sell. So it's it comes down to that word of mouth thing and just the total mystery of how books sell.
0: Damn.
1: I want to be one of those authors who does nothing and his books sell. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's the way to be Yeah, that's the, that's the best category to be in.
1: (laughs) Jesus take the wheel.
2: Um, okay.
1: All right. So, uh, what kind of, what kind of stuff are you looking for at Lazy Fash? It seems to run, cover a lot of ground, right? There's not like one particularly narrow channel that you're trying to publish in. Like what, what do you, how do you articulate that when somebody asks you?
2: Uh, you know, I, uh, we publish a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm not interested in one type of thing and I'm not interested in publishing one type of book. So, uh, and every, I mean, we work on a quarterly basis. So we publish books, uh, four times a year and every quarter we publish three to four books. And I want each quarter to, to contain a couple of things, uh, surprising to even the people who read all of our books. And, and as I see it, I, I kind of want to function as, uh, a gatekeeper who can introduce people to things they might not otherwise pick up. So we've published historical fiction, uh, we've published some, you know uh, science fiction, we've published a little bit of everything, and my and goal is to get people outside of their comfort zones and get people exposed to new ideas and new aesthetics. And, and in terms of story, uh, I'm also looking for everything. Uh, we, we do a lot of experimental stuff, but I've done some pretty straightforward mainstream stuff as well. So it's, it's always tough to pin down exactly what we do, which is why I like looking at every type of book and kind of bounce between different scenes and, and circles just to uh, get exposed to as many different voices as I can because I never know where I'll find the next writer I want to publish.
1: Okay, and what about Alt-Lit? Because like Lazy Fascist, in my mind anyway, is sort of a, like loosely associated with that literary movement. Is that unfair assessment?
2: Um, yeah, you know, like, uh, Sam is, you know, a lot of the writers that we published have been associated with Altlet. outlet. So yeah, I think that's a fair test.
1: But it's not like something you're exp- like, we're, you're not like thinking like we're the outlet press and we're going to publish only outlet. That's not the idea.
2: No. Mm-mm.
1: Right. And like, what about that whole scene? Like with you know, this, like this weird, pe- like dark period last fall. When all these scandals erupted, it's like you know people were declaring at the end of alt lit. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a lot of silliness when it gets to that sort of talk. I think, but like, how do you feel about it?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, alt lit in its current form because it's it's not the first movement to adopt that term, but in its in this form, it uh, any movement dies at some point, and it, you know, it could be usually it's infighting. You know, things die from within, not from without. And I think it was inevitable that at some point, uh, people would move on from all of it. Either they would just get older and, and move on to different things, uh, and, and different interests, or, or it would just completely fall apart like it did. And, uh, you know, it's, so, it was a so, really. So wait,
1: you think it's dead?
2: I think all of the, Key people who made it a wonderful thing are still active and and still working, but I think that uh, that term uh, has become so you know strongly associated with so much bad shit that uh, that everyone has kind of stepped away from it. Right. Uh, but that's just my perspective on on it from from what I've seen.
1: And then what's the latest movement? Like, what's the new? Is there something new that we should all be looking out for now that you've seen on the internet or been reading? <laughs>
2: Uh, Who knows? Um, You know, I, I feel like, you know, maybe uh, indie publishing is is kind of in a state of transition right now, you know, HTML giant closed uh, and, and a lot of new things are opening. Entry Magazine is is really kicking ass. Uh, Adam Robinson at uh, Publishing Genius just launched Real Pants, which is a great new website. And uh, I think, yeah, and then you also see a lot of the people who were part of the HTML giant circle are now publishing with, uh, with the big New York presses and, and moving on to much bigger platforms. So I think it's, uh, you know, publishing both on the big scale and, and the tiny scale that we operate on is, is constantly, uh, shifting and, and there's never, you know, a point of stasis. So, uh, I think that 2015 will be a, a Big year in a lot of ways but i don't know if anyone can really say you know what ways yet
1: yeah who knows i mean it's like uh i feel like there's a huge period of change in publishing that started in like 2000 i mean i you know i shouldn't talk like this i don't know what the fuck i'm talking about but it seems like 2004 2005 when authors really started to go online in mass like i know there were authors on yeah like, but... online well before that but like i distinctly remember like when most authors did not have websites and then like in a year most authors did like that was a big shift and then once that happened like all bets were off and that seems to be what kicked off like this period of really intense change that's lasted like a decade and now you know are we turning a corner i mean a decade's kind of a convenient round number and maybe like things are shifting into another phase but uh i don't know i don't know i don't know what to yeah, expect
2: and- yeah, 2005 was around the time that you were involved with Riot Lit, uh, yeah. if I recall. I mean, yeah, I, you were with that.
1: And, I I barely recall that.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was yeah with like Jeremy Robert Johnson and Christopher Young and, uh, uh, and I know there were a bunch of people in that, but it seemed around that time. You know, you also had the Velvet, which was sort of the fan club for Stephen Graham Jones, Craig Davidson, uh, Will Christopher Bear. And then around the same time was when, uh, bizarre fiction kind of finally took on that name. And you saw a lot of groups of writers often with crossover between them, uh, who would unify under a name or, or a group or something else to help cross promote each other and support each other. And, uh, and, you know, that's really what terms are all about. And, and I think what all it was all about in, uh, in a certain way. So, you know, I think that'll continue to happen and most of those types of things happen among independent writers just because you don't have the, you know, a real marketing budget to work with. So the best thing to do is to band together and support each other.
1: Yeah. Well the internet allows that in, you know, unprecedented yeah. ways. So I was reading and that there's this essay that was that has been going around like the web the last week, you know, the way that essays do every once in a while. And like it's this essay about the death of postmodernism and how auto fiction is the new thing. It's not really that fresh of an idea. I think a lot of people have been talking about it, but it's like the whole Canosgard, uh, Canosgard. You know what I'm talking about. Um, my struggle, those books. Yeah, you know the confession, <laughs> the confessional, thinly veiled autobiographical, quote unquote, fiction. Like the move into that and away from postmodernism, and like, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, is there, uh, you know, a part of you editorially that uh, you know embraces that or disagrees with that assertion?
2: You know, I I thought that was that essay was interesting. On one hand, there's always a shift back and forth. You know, after after a lot of the really great shit that was published in the '60s and '70s, uh, you know, by like what like Bartlemy was writing then, you had like Broad again, a lot of uh, a lot of great stuff. You know, in the '80s, things shifted back to quiet realism, and then you know it swung back, and so yeah, that always happens. On the other hand, though. Publishing is so diverse at this point that you could almost make the argument that postmodern fiction has uh, never been more successful. I mean, uh, you know, Blake Butler's 300 million just came out a couple months ago. And if things were really swinging back toward, uh, you know, what he was getting at, then, then that book wouldn't have come out from Harper Perennial. And you could probably name 50, 100 novels uh, from major presses and independent presses that got wide acclaim that, uh, or, you know, stranger and, and uh, than anything that's really been published in decades.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think like that, you just got to do whatever you like to do and like, f- fuck the trends, you know, cause they're going to swing and they're going to people are, it's almost like not the concern of the writer. It's the concern of the writer who writes about writing, you know, it's like,
2: yeah, it's, I think it's important to, to be mindful of trends, and aware of them but ultimately kind of shorting them off and and doing what you do and and hopefully at some point everything clicks and and what you do is what people want and that happens at times but it can change just as quickly.
1: Well and what about this diversity in publishing because I agree with you I mean I think anybody who spends any time in it you know you, you you become aware of how much out how much is being published out there and how much noise is being made and you know on the one hand that's a good thing on the other hand it makes it really hard to Build a readership that can actually uh, make you a living so uh, and then, as a reader it's like you know there 's a lot of bad shit published out there that you have to kind of wade through sometimes to get to the good stuff or you know whatever but um, like navigating it as a writer uh, like do, do you is it something you should just uh come to terms with and do you feel like oh you know i 'm going to write whatever I want to write, and i 'm not worried about whether or not it makes me money, or are you somebody who's thinking? I'm going to be one of the statistically uh, rare few who pulls this off and, man, you know, manages to write work that draws a large audience.
2: I guess I, I try to do both. Um, my most recent book is called Our Level Go the Way of the Salmon, and that just came out. And it's it's what I've been working on for the past two years. And it's a collection of fishing stories because I fish a lot. And I wanted to write a collection of fishing stories, but everything else, whether people wanted to read it or not, I didn't care. Uh, that's what I wanted to do in the book that I wanted to spend the most time on. Uh, but at the same time, then, just uh, last night, I turned in a really pulpy aquatic horror novella that I co-wrote because uh, I noticed a publisher was selling a huge amount of copies of these aquatic horror books. And uh and talk to a collaborator that I work with, Adam Caesar, about writing one of these for them because they were selling really well. So I kinda do both and I kinda like throwing my hat into all sorts of different areas because it, it keeps me stimulated and, and keeps me interested and, and engaged in what I do.
1: And what about fishing? You fished since you were a kid? Yeah, I have. Okay. Like what like fly fishing?
2: Uh, no, I don't fly fish, uh, too much gear involves, but I fish for, you know, basically everything from trout, bass, uh, carp, uh, salmon, sturgeon, I'll fish for anything.
1: You get on a boat or you just stand on the riverbank?
2: Uh, banks.
1: Banks. Like how often you yeah. fish, How often are you fishing?
2: Uh, I'd be fishing today if we weren't on the phone, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, yeah, I fish, you know, actually in the next couple of weeks, I'll probably fish three to four times a week how long are you out there and then uh you know it depends i mean the closest river to me i mean from our front yard we can see youngs bay which uh connects with the columbia river and then about 15 minutes away uh i've got the claskina river which is more of a creek so i'll you know i can go up there though and it's a small creek it's shallow and i can hit certain holes and if i if i leave at 7:30 8:00 in the morning i can be home by 10 uh but also 15 minutes away, we've got the ocean, so I'll probably spend more time surf fishing over the next couple of weeks before we leave for South Africa.
1: Wow! And so you and you uh, you eat what you catch, or you just throw it back?
2: It depends what I'm fishing for. I I like eating what I catch, uh, but you know I do a lot of catch and release fishing as well. There's no retention for white sturgeon right now, so if I'm fishing for sturgeon, it's all catch and release at this point. Uh, but I haven't fished for sturgeon uh, since the last retention season, except for taking out friends occasionally. Cool.
1: All right. It's very rare. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I don't know too many writers who fish. It seems like it's very very Hemingway.
2: Yeah, there are quite a few. I, it's funny. I'm meeting far more writers who fish, uh, and, uh, yeah, I've actually been making a lot of, uh, new writing friends that way and just get emails from them. Be be like, Hey, I fish too. And then we'll start sharing stories or, uh, or there's a filmmaker I met recently and most of his uh, short films uh, involve fish in some way because he also fishes and goes fishing and, and I yeah, really love his film. So what's yeah, a ba- what's like,
1: what's a memorable fishing story? You ever like catch something insane or like, what's the, what's
2: memorable fishing story. You know, that's uh, fishing the Willamette river in, Portland is, is a lot of fun. It's a super fun site. And so I avoided it for a long time, but finally decided that, you know, in Portland, uh, I didn't have a car. So everywhere that I fished, I was walking there, uh, busing there, taking the train or or biking. And uh, since I lived downtown, I finally just resigned myself to fishing the super fun site and uh, didn't the, really know. The, 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 del-
1: the super what?
2: Superfund site. It's a federal super fun site. It's uh, massively polluted. Oh okay. But uh yeah, I started fishing that, not really sure what to catch and and uh, eventually found out that that there's a massive population of of white sturgeon right under Burnside Bridge that the water drops off from thirty feet to eighty feet and they kind of just fill up in, fill up this hole in the winter. And uh, and you know, sturgeon are fun just because any fish can be uh two feet long or ten feet long and and you really never know what you're gonna get into.
1: And would you catch i I'm waiting for you to tell me you caught like a monstrous sturgeon with like teeth.
2: (laughs) Oh, I I hooked plenty, but it's it's tough to bring those up from the bank. You know, they're eighty feet down, they're massively powerful. I mean, even even the four foot fish are, are tough, but uh but yeah, I got plenty of those in. But yeah, I'm trying to think. I was just thinking yeah, other memorable stories. You know, in Portland it was just a, a big homeless population. And so when I was walking around, I was one of the, I was one of probably half a dozen people who regularly fished uh, that area. And every, you know, a lot of homeless people, they'd, they'd see your fishing rod and they'd come up and just tell you all their stories about fishing. And they all had stories about better times when they caught these massive fish from wherever they were from. So, you know, I'd have guys from the South come up and, and they just talked to me for, for as long as, you know, as long as I would let them, which was as long as they wanted to talk. So.
1: You're not you're not like, dude, get the fuck away from me. I'm trying to fish. <laughs> trying to have
2: some No, you know, I mean sometimes yeah, they'd come up and I couldn't really fish, uh, because of just uh talking. But yeah, I know it was it was good. And uh and for some reason with the fishing around they approached me, they you know, not asking for money or anything, but simply to talk and, and share stories.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's it's making me remember like uh my first job out of college, there was this old man who worked at uh, the office and he was like at the end of his career he was like in his you know his 60s he was getting ready to like take the watch and retire and uh, he'd worked at the company for like his whole life and on the weekends he would fish and like he for whatever reason he took a shine to me i think it was because i was like brand new you know i was just like this young guy and you know he was at the end of his career and i was at the beginning and he would always go fishing on the weekends as like his like thing and i didn't know how to fly fish and he did and he would tell me these stories, and I would listen. And then, like one day, I was finally like, "Man, you, should, you know, I'd love to go out with you. You could teach me how." And he was like, "No, I only do that alone." And then I felt awkward for asking. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, it was like a sad. It was a sad moment. He was a good guy, but he was like, "No, I'm not taking you. Like that's my thing." And it was like, wow. it was uncomfortable. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm- like so this this is all like a long winded way of me asking if, if you will take me fishing sometime. I just want to go fishing. Oh
2: so. <laughs> oh absolutely, take you fishing. Yeah, that's the thing. I I fish mostly alone. Um I fish with my wife a good bit too, but I, I love being alone, but at the same time one of my favorite things is to take people out who have never been or don't regularly go. So I've I've taken, you know, one friend's daughter uh to catch her first fish. She's she's like four. Uh, another friend's niece uh you know basically and then a lot of friends you know i had a friend visiting from Austin, so i took him sturgeon fishing and and yeah i, I love taking people out
1: and you don't give a shit about the hook and the mouth and because i get worried about the fish struggling and i i i get all that all bothers me you know like i get emotional about that
2: but that doesn't bother you uh you know it's uh it's there are a lot of things to do to ensure that fish swim away safely uh Or you can, you know, simply fish for things that you intend to eat. Uh, But if, you know, if ever, like there's, you know, like a yellow perch, for example, they'll often uh, strike in a way where they swallow the hook, uh, which which you don't want, uh, because then you've got a higher mortality rate. Uh, And in that case, you know, I'll simply, on one hand, you can simply move uh, and, and get out of that area until they're going to feed differently. Or uh, the other thing about populations like that, yellow perch, uh, they stunt their own population. And when unchecked, they kind of go out of control and, and damage their own uh, numbers and, and their own species. So often, you know, fishing for those, you can take home a couple dozen. And, and in fact, you're helping the population because uh, if if you don't take them home, then they basically yeah, stunt themselves. So right.
1: Okay. Well, and so... Um like just back to publishing before I let you go, like you, you know, you're doing all this stuff, you're writing books across genres and trying different things and experimenting. And then you're also working editorially, um, you know, when it comes to lazy Fascist and it comes to the future, like what's the end game look like for you? Or what do you, do you have something that you're kind of moving towards as a goal? Do you want to eventually be able to, to sustain yourself purely, you know, solely on writing? Do you want to eventually build up lazy fascist, uh, catalog to the point where like one of the bigs, uh, tries to acquire you, uh, or do you just want to keep running it until you you know till the end or what what's the plan? do you have one
2: yeah i I have, I have no interest to be acquired by a, a larger press simply because you know there's the chance of losing control uh, which is something I like having uh, and I also enjoy working on other people's books as much as I enjoy working on my own so i I have no interest in in you know leaving editing or or leaving writing it's Uh, good for me to have the opportunity to bounce from one to the other and kind of keeps me refreshed when I go back to whichever one. And, and so for now I intend to stay the course and uh, not really change anything up.
1: And just live in Astoria and and have kids and fish and, you know, it sounds like a good life up there.
2: Basically that. And then Yeah, (laughs) that's essentially uh, the plan.
1: Are you going to be like you're going to have like the baby Bjorn on? You'll have the little infant in, you know, and then you'll be fishing with the, you know, I could see the whole. I can I can envision this.
2: Yeah, I've I I look forward to that. I've actually I've seen that a good bit, so it can definitely be done.
1: And then what about when you go to South Africa to do this residency? Like, do does everything be is everything put on hold, or do you continue to do your uh, editorial and writing work in the midst of all that?
2: Our first order uh, books with Lazy Fascists will come out while I'm over there, so I will continue, uh, you know, working with the authors and being available, uh, but also be starting a new book while I'm over there at my own. Um, a lot of the time that I spend over there will just be uh, spent working on uh, a new book.
1: Are you going to go on safari? Uh,
2: going ocean fishing, it looks like.
1: Oh, you are okay. You're not going to go in and yeah. see like the zebras and shit and the lions.
2: There's, there's an elephant reserve near the university, so it looks like we we'll probably get out to the elephant reserve, and then uh, there's a restaurant owner there who who's an ocean fisherman, and he's offered to take me out, so I'm hoping that works out.
1: Are you going to uh, fish for sharks?
2: I'll probably fish for sharks here pretty soon, but out there, no, I don't think so. There's great whites out there, or at least more <laughs> of them than there are here, so <laughs> sharks scare me.
1: Yeah, no, me too. I have, I want nothing to do with a great white shark. Nothing.
2: No, not at all. I even, uh, for the most recent book that I was co-writing the ulti aquatic car thing, there was one scene I got stuck on for months. It was a scuba diving scene. And no matter how much research I did, everything else, every day that I sat down to write this scene, I, I couldn't do it. And my co-writer is asking, you know, what's going on, where it's at. And I'm, I'm like, I don't know what to do. And finally I had to accept that I couldn't write this scene. And, and he had to handle that one. And I don't know what it was about the scene still, but I've come to the conclusion that scuba diving scares the shit out of me so much. The <laughs> idea of having, of being underwater like that, that it makes me claustrophobic and terrified. Uh, the, the same, basically, I'm so drawn to water and fascinated by water, always wanting to know, you know what's living in there. Uh, and on the inverse side, it terrifies me so much that I can't imagine being at the bottom of it. You, and so I you, couldn't where, write the scene because I can't process it.
1: Do you swim in the ocean? No, I don't you won 't
2: I have, uh, but it scares me,
1: okay. You swim in a lake,
2: that scares me too i 'll do it, but <laughs> honestly uh honestly, swimming in bodies of water i can 't even you know I can be in a freshwater lake and still think that a kraken is going to come up and pull me under
1: yeah i have so. a, I have a, I have a friend who has that i 'm weird I would rather swim in the ocean than in a lake, lakes just seem dirty it's just, it's, it 's just it doesn 't move around enough, you know, but like I like. I actually really like swimming in the ocean and getting pummeled by waves like that uh, is- i
2: yeah the thing is I love the experience and and I don't mind getting getting out in the water um, it's just uh I have to kind of keep myself calm and and quiet the voice in my head that says I'm going to be pulled under by a mysterious creature at any moment
1: I think if that happened though I mean like if a if a great white shark hits uh you'd be in such shock and it would be so powerful like I'm not even sure. You know, I say that. Oh, I'm
2: not worried. The pain. I'm not worried about the pain. You know, and it's not even. It, it's just the the unexpected. You know, uh, happening and, and losing control like that, and and.
1: <laughs> I would. Shit. And I know it'd be yeah.
2: completely fine because you know you, your your body would take over and you'd go into shock and it'd be fine because you'd either die or you wouldn't die. Right. And either way, no big deal. But it would it's just like before it's the before moment you know it's, it's often things like that that the build up and the anticipation uh in yeah. the dread that's far worse than whatever could actually happen yeah
1: but it could be bad like if you're like there there are stories of people where like they're looking down and the thing has like you know it's like got its jaws on them and they can they're like punching it in the in the nose <laughs> <You know>? yeah <laughs> So i mean I, I could be i could be trying to soften this for myself i you know Let's just hope that neither of us. I'm going to knock on wood. Uh, I hope you don't get eaten by a shark in South Africa or any other place. I hope I don't get eaten by a shark. Uh, and I appreciate you talking with me. It's really interesting uh, to hear from somebody who's doing all these different things at once and doing them well. And I, I certainly wish you well going forward, especially with the, uh, oh. the incoming uh, baby
2: oh thanks and thanks so much for having me on the show it's good talking to
1: you okay guys there you go that's Cameron Pierce go check out uh, Lazy Fascist Press at lazyfascistpress.com you can also follow Cameron at Cameron Pierce over on the Twitter and uh, he's got a whole uh, slew of books out there a dozen books published he's a very uh, busy guy he's in his twenties published a dozen books Don't forget to get the app. Oh, no, wait. I should say first, uh, Kill Rockstars provided the music for this program. Check out killrockstars.com. Check out more music. Don't forget that this program has its own app, its own official app. It's free. Oh, my God. Get the app. Best way to listen. Get it on your device. The Other People app. It's free. And then sign up for premium if you want to stream uh, the deep archives. Get access to everything. Support the show. I should add, too, you know, talking about war on terror, using the word war. How about, uh, no war? How about we, uh, think this through a little bit? I understand sometimes certain extreme circumstances, force has to be used. But, uh, I lean closer to pacifism than most, maybe. I don't see a future where, uh, we're going to be able to resolve conflicts in an age of, uh, biological warfare in an age of cyber terrorism in an age of, uh, suitcase nukes, I don't see a future where we're going to be able to coexist or exist at all unless we come up with a wiser approach, uh, that involves, uh, shifting consciousness, dialogue, something starts with the individual, doesn't it? If you want peace, you have to be peace. Hell yeah. Don't listen to these assholes who tell you that peaceniks are naive. What's naive is to believe that war is going to be a sustainable solution to conflict. And that answering violent assholes with violent behavior is sustainable. That's naive. I approve this message. Please remember that Tennessee Williams was born in an Episcopal rectory and that André Gide had a sexless marriage with his first cousin. That's it for now. Uh, Great thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Great thanks to Cameron Pierce. Go check out Lazy Fascist Press, one of the uh, country's finest independent presses. And I will be back next week with another program, another conversation. I'll interview somebody. We'll talk. I might rant at the outset because that uh, has been the trend lately. I've been ranting a lot. Anyway, peace.